Be prepared to be changed, challenged, awakened, and refreshed. Back by popular demand, Tent Theology is offering another online summer school this August. This summer, we'll be looking at the life and thought of Soren Kierkegaard. It is hosted by me, Stephen Backout. I did my doctorate on Kierkegaard and have published a number of books and articles on him. The online course will explore the amazing life and important ideas of this influential 19th century Danish rabble-rouser, who understood more than anyone the difference between being a Christian nationalist and being a follower of Jesus. The course involves discussion, teaching and guided reading. It will take place over the first four Mondays of August 2021. Each session will be based on selected passages, as well as the biography I wrote a few years ago entitled Kierkegaard, A Single Life. All the reading material, including a paperback copy of the book, will be provided. Over the summer, the weeks of reading and discussions proved to be some of the most invigorating weeks I'd experienced in years. And that's saying something since I started skydiving a few years ago. I strongly encourage, without reservation, anyone thinking of taking a 10th theology course to take the jump. For details, prices, and to register, visit the courses page of the Tent Theology website or email info at tenttheology.com. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. I'm really happy today to have coming into the tent, Rachel Pye Jones. Rachel is an author. She is a traveler. She is a runner. She is a mother. She is a really an all-around fascinating, interesting person. And I first came in touch with Rachel through her book, Pillars, which was an account of her life in Somalia and in Djibouti, living with Muslims, and how being an American transplanted to the African countries has changed her outlook in life and made her renew her own interest in her Christianity and her following of Jesus, how Islam helped her know Jesus better. Rachel is an author. She's written for the New York Times, for Christianity Today. I think she'll tell us a lot of other things. She's written a travel book on Djibouti. There's all sorts of interesting things we're going to talk about. Rachel, welcome to the tent. Hey, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you've got to fill in the details that I missed here, because I wrote out your, your bio, but I didn't, want to, uh, I didn't want to break the contact by looking down. So let's see. Uh, you wrote a book called Stronger Than Death. What was that about? Yeah, Stronger Than Death, How Annalena Tonelli Defied Terror and Tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa. And that is a book about, it's kind of, it's mostly biography. There's a little bit of memoir mixed into it. There was an Italian woman named Annalena Tonelli who spent over 33 years in the Horn of Africa. She was Catholic and she developed a treatment for tuberculosis that was useful for Somali nomads. And the treatment eventually became what was the global treatment for specifically nomads, but also in other areas where tuberculosis was really, really spreading. And when my family moved to Somaliland, Northern Somalia in 2003, she was actually living there in this village where she was running a TB clinic. And in October of that year, she was assassinated inside her clinic. 
And so all the people around us, all the Somalis, all the other, you know, Italians, Catholics, Christians, Muslims, they all said, we really love this woman. And so, and my family, because of her murder, had to evacuate the country. So is that, okay, is that the story that kicks off Pillars then? Yes. Well, yeah, there was another murder that followed 10 days later of a couple, but those murders together all just conspired to cause my own family to flee. And then I was asking these questions of why did everybody say that they loved this woman and then somebody killed her? And then my own life was overturned. And so there's all these intersections that came up. So that was that book is her story. And then Pillars kind of starts there and launches into my own story after that. I really, we're going to talk about Pillars for the rest of the time. Now, I mean, you're also, a, are you a journalist? Or how did you kind of get into writing? I noticed that you have written for quite a number of outlets. Have you come into writing through journalism or investigative journalism? No, I'm not a journalist. I do some reported stories, and but nothing like investigative journalism, especially not here in the Horn of Africa. Um, mostly I focus on people's personal stories. So my own story, my own story of raising kids abroad, faith conversations, but then also really engaging with local people about things that I find fascinating as a foreigner, like that they might be surprised by my interest in, you know, so there's, for example, women on the side of the roads that have these tea shops, they set up every morning and they serve lunch and breakfast to the construction workers. It's a real informal type of economy. And that fascinates me. What is it like for them to operate this economy there? What do they do? What do they need? How do they function long-term? Um, and when I started asking people stories about that, you know, questions about that, they were really surprised that I was, that that was interesting to me. So I love being able to use writing and curiosity to explore kind of areas that as a foreigner are really unique to, in my perspective. So that's where the writing has come out of. So you say you're a foreigner. Tell us a little bit about where you came from before we talk about where you are now. Where, where you're not originally from the Horn of Africa, Rachel. Where are you from? Well, I'm not. I'm from about the opposite that you can get. Um, I'm from Minnesota in the United States. So a very cold, snowy state. Um, and in 2003, my family moved to the Horn of Africa and we've been here ever since. And so what brought you to, it was Somalia originally, what brought you to Somalia? My husband and I were living in a high-rise apartment complex in downtown Minneapolis that was filled with mostly Somali refugees at that time. We moved in there in 1999 and we had wanted already, we had a vision of living abroad. We didn't really know where, but just someplace we wanted to be challenged. We wanted to be pushed outside our comfort zone. We wanted to be useful in some way. And so um, he specifically wanted to be a teacher or had training to be a teacher. He has a PhD in education. And so through the Somali contacts in that high-rise complex, we started to hear about this university in Northern Somalia that was relatively peaceful. It was stable. They were actively looking for native English speakers who could come and teach sciences, so physics, math, which was his specialty at that time. And so we had this um, open invitation to come to a place where our specific skill set, I studied linguistics in college, um, would be useful. And we had people who wanted us to come. So we wouldn't be coming in as kind of these Westerners saying, hey, we know what you guys need. And then doing something that would really maybe not meet those needs at all. But we would be under the local authority partnering with what um, they were hoping to accomplish. And so even though it was such a stretch for us to move from the city to this village, from this you know cold state to the desert region, 
we we felt like because of those things, it it was a good fit for us, even though it would really stretch us entirely. Um, it felt right. What did you know of Muslim majority countries or even of Islam itself before you before you moved into the high rise in Minneapolis? What was your what was the kind of when you thought about Islam, where did your imagination go? Before I really knew anything, <laughs> but I had a lot of ideas from what I'd been uh, absorbing, I guess, was that Christians, so I'm a Christian from a Christian Baptist upbringing family. Christians and Muslims were opposed to each other. We were enemies. We should kind of be afraid or feel threatened in some way. If we developed a relationship with them, it would somehow maybe threaten our own faith or call our faith into question. And so, you know, that there was a lot of division. It wasn't explicitly said that until 9-11 in the United States, but, but even just growing up, it wasn't something that we talked about, but anybody who wasn't inside my small frame of people who believed and acted and looked like me were threats. They were someone I was opposed to instead of someone I could come alongside. And so I met my first Muslim friend actually in, uh, it was 1997. She was my, I, I was working as a housekeeper at a YMCA ranch in Colorado. And she was my, my boss, basically. I mean, not my boss, but she would lead our, our daily sessions. I can't think of the word. She was a uh, team leader. Yes. Yeah. And, and she was amazing. She was funny and she was vibrant and she had her hair out. She never covered her head. Um, so I had all these misconceptions that a Muslim woman specifically would be oppressed, um, covered. And yet here was this dynamic person that didn't fit my very limited stereotypes. So right away I had to start reimagining, rethinking about what does it actually mean to be a Muslim now that I know one? What's it like? So I grew up in, in Alberta, in Canada, in an evangelical world, very similar to Minnesota. Um, have you seen the film Fargo? You know, you know the movie in the film Fargo, which is set, which is set in Minnesota. Yes. Well, it was actually filmed in Alberta, about ten minutes yeah. away from where I grew up. So you and I share very similar cultural, uh, geographical backgrounds. I think, and one of the things when I was reading Pillars, your book, that really like hit me really quickly was your story of of a Muslim friend. Was this the same friend who who suffered a family tragedy? Yes. And, and I'm going to get you to tell the story, but I just want to say, like, when I read that, I was like, oh, that was me. That mm -hmm. so could have been me. That uh, so Tell us what happened. So you're, you're a Muslim friend, this vibrant, dynamic person. She mm -hmm. suffered a family tragedy. And what did you do, Rachel, as a evangelical middle American? Yeah, great question. So she was Nigerian and she got message that her uncle had been killed in a bomb attack in Kenya. He was a Muslim. The people who had done the attack were supposedly Muslims. And so this was an Islamic terrorist attack. And so by way of, of comfort, I guess, to her in, in my confused state, uh, so she was going to leave very quickly to go back to Africa to be with her family. And I didn't, I didn't want her to leave without hearing the gospel. And so what I did was I wrote her a letter and I drew out what's kind of known as the bridge illustration. Um, which it shows you, know, you are on one side of a great chasm, God is on the other side and the cross is kind of in between and you need to get a, to the other side to be with God. 
by walking across this cross, which would symbolize faith in Jesus. And so I, I marked out all the steps on this bridge illustration of sin and salvation and heaven and hell. And then I left it with her and I never heard from her again. Um, but as soon as I handed it to her, I just had this feeling of, I think I missed something. Like I do, I do personally believe in salvation through Jesus and being with God, but this idea that I would put it on a piece of paper when she was in such a grieving kind of shocked, traumatic state by what had just happened. And now she's getting uprooted and sent back to a different continent, you know, losing her work at that time in the community that she had built. And my response was to just sort of preach at her instead of to meet her in her space of, of grief and to think about how maybe I could have communicated um, something equally true and equally power, even more true, I think, um, of God's presence with her and God's comforting spirit. You know, I could have I could have loved her a lot better, I think, than what I did in that message. And so that experience, um, it just really made me think about what is, what do I want to communicate? What is, what is faith and what is God in these places of grief and in different opinions? Um, how can I be a better friend? Um, even as I have my faith convictions and she has hers, how can I love her well? How can I love people better? So yeah, that was, um, I don't use that illustration <laughs> anymore. Um, I think there's a lot of limitations to it. And there's a lot of, you know, we have such tools in the West of how we like to communicate the quote unquote gospel, but they just, they're not, they're not Jesus. They're not this relationship with a good, loving, present God. And so I've kind of unpacked a lot of that now. I mean, the, the obvious next question is, what would you say now, knowing who you are now? What would Rachel of now say to that friend? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Because in a letter, how can you really communicate all the things you want? But I think I would just try to speak to her grief and just acknowledge what she had lost. Um, and to really meet her in that place of, of her loss and pain, instead of just kind of smacking a preaching type of message of, well, now this is what you need to believe. Um, but, but just to say, you know, I understand that you're grieving, that you've lost something. And here's how God has comforted me in my spaces of grief, maybe writing a psalm, maybe writing a poem, looking at, even at something from the Quran that maybe would comfort her, actually looking at what is that person experiencing instead of what I think I need to throw at them. Yeah, I, I had a thought that almost I feel like in our, what, what the idea is, is that we need to be that bridge rather than tell somebody about a bridge to cross to get to God. It's like, well, actually, we need to bridge that, right? Like show empathy common human thought and cross over to be with them right what what else does mourn with those who mourn look like except something like that right yes exactly exactly and even that illustration which implies that you cross this bridge that's not even the gospel the gospel is that god came to us like you and through his people now we're filled with the spirit we are yes we are that bridge we're the ones who can be with them in that space so yeah it's a very different message i mean there's also the sense of that it's well-meaning. So it wasn't like, I, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't grow up in a culture that, that like absolutely demonized Muslims. They probably more thought of Muslims as a target for conversion before anything else. Yeah, correct. Right. So, so your main interaction was, well, here is a, here is a person who I need to save because this was pre 9-11. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's where, that's where it hit me. Cause I was like, yeah, that is the way I grew up too, just completely always thinking that 
everybody I meet who's not a conservative evangelical needs to be saved. Mm. And, and by saved meant convinced by my thing that I learned, uh, th this formula that I learned uh, that other people have to uh, ascribe to before they can be saved, right? Right, and it turns them into a project and it makes it seem like if they're not going to believe what I'm telling them to believe, that the relationship needs to end and I need to move on. So how did this start to change for you? Like what's, what started to crack? What, what brought you into the place where you no longer saw people as projects or caricatures uh, in order to work on? What, what, tell us some of the, where, where you got to where you are now. So first of all, in that apartment complex, then a couple of years later, uh, I just started to see people, Muslims, Somalis specifically, who didn't, Feel like they had a god-sized hole in their heart have right. you heard that? yeah of course i have <laughs> and so they felt really served by islam and blessed and loved their community they appreciated their traditions and that was my first encounter of that of seeing okay actually they're not looking for anything else you know i had this idea that all they need to do and all anyone ever wants is to hear what i have to offer and they will just leap at the chance right they're just waiting hole. for the helicopter to come and lift down the ladder that you can lift them out of their lives. Yeah. Right. And I have it, you know, so, so that was the very first exposure. And then we moved to the Horn of Africa where that continued even more so as my relationships grew deeper and in Somalia and then in Djibouti. Um, and I started to have these relationships where I really loved people and they really loved me. I mean, the way that we were welcomed as foreigners, especially in Somaliland, initially where we were some of the first white foreigners who had ever lived in this town. And so we were now the strange ones who needed help, who needed to be welcomed, who needed to be taken care of and looked out for um, like children and, and people did it really well for me. And so these relationships, um, they were not relationships that I wanted to just get rid of if people wouldn't agree with me about my theology and my faith. And then again in Djibouti where I, um, I just really love and I'm thankful for my friends. And so when people turn into actual friends who were in my house every day, who were there when my baby was born, who walked with me through, you know, arguments with my husband, all the basic things of life through growing up my kids and graduating my kids from high school, those aren't relationships that I want to just throw away because people don't agree with me about faith. And so really the idea of people as projects just ended when they weren't even people anymore, but friends. When you showed up, did people have caricatures about you? What a white American Christian woman must be. Were you kind of put into boxes? And then uh, what did that feel like? Yeah, it does not feel good. So yes, they absolutely put me in boxes. And and I part of the reciprocal nature of this, these friendships have been undoing those boxes. So initially in Somaliland, you know, a white woman was really seen as someone who was very loose, morally sleeping around. Um, one time my, my husband picked me up on a motorcycle from our house and it was a different man's, a different white man's motorcycle. And to get on it, I had to, I had a long dress. I had to lift up the dress and show my leg. And then he wore a helmet. And so no one knew that it was my husband. So I, we're driving around this village with me on the back of someone else's motorcycle and immediately the whole village the rumor spread that i was sleeping with all the all the men and so that you know that idea that comes into their mind because of the media and all the things that they're hearing too was something and people also started to call me an infidel the mali word is galo or galeda for a woman 
And I found it quite offensive and hurtful. And so that also made me realize when I'm putting these stereotypes on to Muslims, it doesn't feel good for them because I was experiencing that, um, that sense of being in that box myself and being judged for something that I'm not. And so that also made me really have to turn over the ideas that I had, the misconceptions. Um, the, the idea that people call me an infidel, I just find really... What does, what does that mean, infidel? Like, I, I, know what, I know what we, in the caricature, what we think it, it means. But like when, when somebody called you an infidel in your village in Somalia, what, what were they feeling and thinking when they said that? So it could be one of two things. The word could just be, it, it technically means infidel, but it could be being used to say white person. And a white person would be assumed to not be a Muslim because of their, their worldview um, of here, of everyone they know would be African, Somali, Black, and Muslim. And so even though there are definitely white Muslims in the world, uh, I wouldn't, I'm not one. And so it could be just white person, but also a person who is not, doesn't have faith, has rejected the true faith. And is it, an, is it antagonism coming towards you or is it, is it, uh, is it pity? Like what, what is, when somebody says that about you, like what are they feeling? It could be both. Um, so a lot of times kids will use it just to kind of get your attention. That was what I initially experienced. Kids would just shout out because they didn't know what else to say to me. They would shout out, Galo, Galo. And then I would look and they were just waving to say hello. Um, so that was like a, a curiosity, a look at the weird foreign person here. But sometimes it can definitely be, especially from uh, from men, it can be more like an insult or an antagonistic kind of thing to me as a woman, not to my husband, it would be different. And then from friends or people who are were slowly developing a relationship, it would be more kind of a pity, like, oh, I'm so sorry that you don't believe what, what I believe. Um, and I think maybe you should become a Muslim, like it would be in that sort of context. And then as, actually as friends uh, got to know me more and hear more about my faith, when they actually became friends, they would start to defend me. When someone else would be a Galo, they would say, no, no, she's not a Muslim, she's a little bit weird but she's not a Galo. She has some kind of faith. So tell us what you started to learn as, as you, did you, well, first of all, I'm interested, did, did women pursue you? Were there friendly fellow travelers or people of peace that pursued friendship with you? Or did you have to sort of pursue them and break through some of these barriers that had been put in place? So in, um, in Djibouti specifically, initially I would say that I was paying people to be my friends. <laughs> I hired, I had a housekeeper, I had a nanny, and I had a language tutor. And so these women were in my house almost every day, all three of them, and they varied throughout the years. But um, initially, that was what I needed. Um, eventually, they, it got to be more a mutual thing. Um, my husband, as a professor, a lot of his peers were professors. So they were PhD educated in France, maybe or other places. And so a lot of, um, a lot of them or their, their wives, if if the husband was the professor, would reach out to me to talk about books and political topics and just kind of more parenting types of things because they had also lived abroad. And so now coming back, they kind of felt some affinity with me as a fellow foreigner in some ways, or they've just been coworkers through various English courses I've taught or a running club I started, things like that. So you basically just continued to be present. You weren't going away. And so yeah. people had to deal, they had to learn to become your friend. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're still here. It's been almost 18 years. So, yeah, people have to put up with us. Well, there, there is some violence and antagonism in the story of you living abroad. So where, where was that coming from? I mean, because your story, your book 
begins with quite a dramatic scene of you having to flee the home that you've been living in. You talked about your friend that that was executed. So what what there is some violence there. I mean, we don't want to just paper over the fact that there is often quite uh, physical violence directed against people sometimes living yeah. in the in these cultures. Where was that coming from? Yeah, I think that's important to acknowledge. And so the story does open, the book does open with our flight after only 10 months in the Horn of Africa, where we had 30 minutes to pack a bag and we threw the bag into the car and drove off to the airport. And I didn't go back until 2014. And so that, when I think about that, it's important to me to recognize that that was not Islamic violence. That wasn't Muslim violence. The people who, who did murder Annalena would say they're Muslims, but they weren't doing it because they were Muslims or they weren't doing it because she was Catholic Christian. They were doing it for all kinds of other reasons that came up as I researched the book. Um, and so to me, that's a really different thing to differentiate. And I think a lot of the violence that we see in the quote unquote Muslim world right now is not religious violence. Some of it is done in the name of Islam, um, but a lot of it is political. A lot of it has to do with money, with lack of education, with people who are frustrated with poverty or colonial you know, things that have been just complicated throughout generations. And so it's important to me to differentiate between those kinds of violence things. And here in Djibouti, I do experience actually quite a bit of harassment um, sexual harassment, especially. And so again, that's not because I'm a Christian. It's not religious violence. It's just, it's part of living in a world, a broken world where some people are like that and some people are so welcoming. And I experience it also in the US. So it's not unique to this place, um, but I do stick out here. And so even though I, I am, I try to be respectful, I don't cover my hair and I have white skin. And so I stand out, I'm an easy target. And you're quite a serious runner as well, long distance runner, I should probably add. And so seeing a white woman sort of loping around <laughs> probably is quite a unique and odd sight anyway. So. Yes, it really is. Yeah. And so that a lot of it happens when I'm on the run. Um, and I also understand most of the local languages, both French and Somali. And so a lot of other people, a lot of other foreigners don't realize that they're maybe being harassed. And so I do experience more of it because of that. Um, because I just, I'm not afraid to go places that other people might not go um, because of some of our work projects that we do. So in some ways I open myself up to it as a really strange foreigner. And, and sometimes people just don't know what to do about my otherness. And so their reaction comes out in aggression, um, which I, I understand it's hard to put up with, but I do understand that. Well, one of the things I noticed about your book, which by the way, I'm going to consider consider this a plug listeners like this is a really good book pillars by rachel jones is well the best book i read this year i loved it i absolutely loved it so mm -hmm. i really want people to read it and take it out but one of the things that i noticed about it was how much grace was being offered to you you were the target you were the recipient of grace and mercy because you were so unaware what you were doing in these cultures and you were accidentally stepping in all sorts of faux pas and landmines and, and yeah. cultural problems. And, and, and these, it was primarily these women that were just so gracious to you. So, I mean, I, I wanted to mention a bit about the, the violence and the, uh, and the abuse, but this is not a story about the violence and the abuse that you suffered because you were living in a Muslim country. This is, this is not that story. This is a story about 
Muslims showing you just utter hospitality, graciousness, patience, kindness, self-control. What did you learn? What did you, when you were brought into some of those situations, what, what did you start to learn about Islam and what it really was? Well, these women would stand up for me if they would see me being harassed or things like that. So it, the, the harassment is not the end of the story. It would be being protected by the community. So one of the things that I really have learned from my Muslim community that has helped me that I'm learning to explore in my own Christian tradition is that sense of community. There's so much sense of we need to protect this foreign woman who's kind of fumbling around making these mistakes in some ways. And so we will step step in for her and stand up for her. And so, and they do that for each other as well. It's not just for me, but you know, we are called to look out for the vulnerable, to seek justice for the oppressed. And I'm not oppressed here at all, but I, sometimes I would be more vulnerable because of my naivety and they would look out for me. And so that sense of community coming together for each other has um, is something that I really have appreciated and want to consider for my own Christian faith and Christian community. Um, how can I really embody that? Just so many practices that I see because Islam is so present here, even as we're talking right now, I can actually hear the call to prayer in the background coming from our neighborhood mosque. It's quiet, but there's mosques everywhere. So every day, five times a day, we hear the call to prayer and people, um, they actively and visibly give to beggars on the street or when they're fasting for Ramadan, they're, they talk about it and they speak about it together. So Islam is very much present as religion, as faith in our daily life here. And so that also has helped me to think about what are some Christian practices that I can physically embody so that people will see and know that I'm a person of faith. Did you, uh, the subtitle of your book, of course, is How My Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. So what, what parts of Jesus's personality did you, have you been learning in the last 18 years? Hmm. One is just that idea of how he would look out for the people, move toward the sick and the, the women and the foreigners and really welcome them. Uh, and then one specific thing that I found so interesting um, is in John 3, when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is asking about how can I be born again, this idea of being born again. And it's always been a little bit confusing. It, it doesn't really make sense. Just like Nicodemus was confused. I feel like I can really understand that. And uh, there's this idea in Islam that everybody is born Muslim. And so when babies are born immediately, including myself and yourself, we are Muslim. And so if we then as adults don't follow Islam, like again, like myself, I have rejected being a Muslim. Then if I become a Muslim again now, if I convert to Islam now, I'm not a convert. They don't talk about conversion in Islam. I would be a revert. Re Somebody revert. reverted back to my original state of how I was born. And so in a sense, it's this idea of being born again. Um, and when in, this is maybe, a, it's a big idea to me, but I'm really trying to learn how to talk about it and how to think about it. In the very beginning, in Genesis, when God made humans, he made them very good. Like the first thing about us before all the darkness and fall and all this stuff happened, we were made very good. And so the, I've started to think about this call of Jesus to be born again, is to think about be born again into how you were originally created to be good, very good, made in the image of God. And so that, that idea from, from Islam has really helped me understand 
that teaching that Jesus was giving to Nicodemus in a different way. Um, the th things like that have just made me so thankful for the exposure to something different that made me then go back into what I already thought I knew and reevaluate it. I, I, I am curious. Uh, so how much do you participate in, in, the, in Muslim uh, practices? Like, do you, do you, do you fast? Do you, do you participate in prayers? Uh, do you partake in any of those kind of activities? I would say not very often, actually. I do fast, um, and I fast during Ramadan, but not the whole month usually. Um, and I'd fast outside the month of Ramadan as well. I don't uh, pray the Salat, which is the, the ritual prayers that they do, unless a, just a few times over the years when a friend has invited me to do it, then I will. You know, I can't go on the Hajj. Only Muslims are allowed on the pilgrimage. For example, one of my friends, her aunt had gone on a pilgrimage on the Hajj and came back and they threw a party for her. So I was invited to the party and I went to that. But that's not a official Muslim practice. Um, if I'm at a funeral and they have these prayer beads that they'll thumb through their fingers almost like a rosary and they'll name one name of God for each bead. If I'm at a funeral, I'll, I'll do that. I'll pick one up and pray through the names of God that I know um, in English and from the Bible. And so in those ways, I, I do participate, but not not in some of the more orthodox traditional ways. Yeah. So what 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 did this what does this mean to your uh, American Baptist people back home? When they read when they read pillars, what do they what do some of the people who you grew up around? I'm not trying to get you to name names, but <laughs> the kind of culture that you came from, how, how do they receive this kind of activity that you're learning through empathy and participation? Yeah, so my the the church body that I talk about in the book that I grew up in is just such a, a lovely community and I'm so thankful for them and they live in a or the church is actually in a part of Minneapolis that has a lot of Somali Muslims around and so the feedback I've heard from that specific church body has been really positive of just helping them to sort of humanize the people around them the Somalis that live around them rather than being afraid of them um, but so so that community has been very receptive um, there are some other communities that are less so less receptive, um, a little bit more concerned that I'm not more explicitly evangelistic in their definition of what that would mean. Um, and just, and some who are a little bit still uncertain, how can we really engage? How can you say that Muslims have helped you in your own faith? You know, that idea is just so foreign as a concept because they're used to feeling, being told that they should feel threatened. You know, if, if talking to someone who doesn't share your same beliefs puts you at risk of losing your faith, how weak is your faith? Right. Already you're at some kind of risk. Um, yeah. I think I will be having more conversations with people like that in the future. I don't, do you have a sense of the, of the lay of the land? Like how, do you have kind of a sense of how evangelicals are, view Islam now? Are things changing a bit or are things getting more, uh, frosty or are they thawing out I'm not it's been a while since I've been around that world so I don't know yeah it has for me too in some ways um you do go back in the summertime often I kind of feel like it's like everything else in evangelicalism right now it's becoming more and more polarized there are people who still say to me aren't you so afraid that all those Muslims try to kill you all the time you know, no I'm not I've lived here for almost 18 years I am definitely not afraid that all the Muslims around me want to kill me every day. That's, that would make me 
crazy. Um, so there's people who still have that idea or who really want some tools that they can have to kind of combat and go to, go to battle with a Muslim. But I have heard more and more people saying, um, thank you, because now, especially again in Minneapolis, Somalis in particular started as refugees there, but now they are second, third generation. They're growing up in the schools, they're getting jobs, they're working alongside people. Now they're partners at work or in neighborhoods. And so people are starting to realize we need to know how to engage without being afraid and without being combative. And so I think a lot of evangelicals who are actually in proximity to and in relationship with Muslims are hungry for, for things like this, ways like this that they can relate that aren't thinking of, of enemies. Yeah. What would you say? I mean, are there any kind of practical tips or advice you would give to people who find themselves in those experiences you've just described, having Somali as workmates, as neighbors, as partners? What's the, what are some sort of good ways to, that we can start bridging the gap in a real way and not just sliding a note under somebody's door? Yeah. Um, one thing I think about a lot is just curiosity. I think I think most people would be really honored if we asked them, you know, I don't know much about Islam. Could you tell me a little bit about it? Or I read that the Hajj is happening this month. Could you explain that to me? I don't know much about it. So just be honest about that you don't know, but that you're willing to hear their story. One question that I love asking my Muslim friends is, what do you love about Islam? Or specifically some practice, what do you love about prayer? What does that do for your soul? And then just to hear their story, I think that makes it so much more personal. So coming into relationships with a sense of curiosity. And then also recognize that, at least for Christians and for Muslims, we are shared people of faith. There are people at our workplaces, at our schools, in our neighborhoods that don't have faith, which we also, we need to be in relationship with them as well and in loving relationships with them too. But we actually share something profound with Muslims. And so as people of faith, how do we serve on the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association at school? How do we um, you know, engage with our work colleagues as people of faith? We can actually partner across our religious differences together. Um, so I would encourage people to think about it like that instead of against each other, but how can we work together? What do you love about Islam? <laughs> I love the visible nature of the faith. Um, I think that's so important. I love the way that they're really honest about, for example, giving. One of my friends would tell me, I'm giving so that I'll earn this reward in the future, in heaven or paradise, which I don't share that. Well, I I didn't think I shared that same idea of I'm not, not giving so that I'll get a reward. It's not this direct exchange. But at some level, I do kind of feel like that. Like I've given some things and I want God to sort of replenish them or meet me in that space. And so I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what I'm supposed to believe, but them saying it exposed me to my own false idea about it. And so in those ways, just um, being around people who are so open about their faith makes it very easy to examine my own and be open about my own faith as well. Yeah, just that they're so generous. They're so quick to give. Um, they're generous with their space, with their time and with their money. Uh, one thing I noticed was or an observation I had when I was reading your stuff was that a lot of it it wasn't so much that you were uh, unlearning or, or or rediscovering Christianity it was that you were unlearning evangelicalism like a certain form of American Baptist evangelicalism so you were realizing oh 
Christianity actually also has set prayers and it also has fasting and it also has public holy year, like a public calendar and a holy year. And actually it's not Christianity that, that didn't have these things. It was the particular little bubble I grew up in Mm -hmm. that didn't have any of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like the liturgical calendar. I just had no concept of that. I heard about Lent, but people who practiced Lent were not believers. (laughs) They were were outside my system. And so I really had no idea of that, but I have, this is another thing that my Muslim friends have really helped me appreciate is that the global historical depth of Christianity that I have come to appreciate in ways I never had considered before. And so, you know, we, we have the Lord's prayer that we recite and we have Lent that we do and we have Pentecost Sunday. I never heard of Pentecost Sunday before. That was not something, you know, the Holy Spirit got kind of honorable mention, but wasn't really important in my upbringing. And so those kinds of things, I just, I'm so thankful for because I now feel, I really feel that I'm part of this body of believers in a tangible way that manifests itself through actual practice, through the prayers and the fasting and the memorized, um, you know, recitation of things. Well, the shaping of a whole life, uh, whole life practice is is something I, I really found interesting about Islam, which I realized, oh, yeah, that we could have that again. Or we there are parts of that in the Christian tradition that your whole life is connected. It's not just a, a an internal intellectual exercise of believing a 10 crazy things and then going on with your normal life. It's actually, no, the whole thing, your practice of living and breathing and eating is also connected, right? Exactly. And that's hard. It can be hard. It's a lot easier to just keep it in your mind and then do whatever you want. But to actually give your time and day to something, it's hard. Have you, why haven't you reverted? Why haven't you had a reversion experience to reclaim your birthright as a Muslim? As a Muslim. You know, I just really, I really believe the Bible. I really am committed to Jesus. And, and Jesus is in the Quran. So a Muslim would also say that they have beliefs about Jesus, but my specific beliefs about Jesus would put me outside Orthodox Islam for sure, namely that he died and rose again. Those those two things are very antithetical to Islam. So I just can't uh, myself abandon those things that I really love. And I, I love the grace that's inherent in being a Christian. Um, I do think I have a personality bent toward legalism. And so in some ways, I remember thinking several years ago, I think I would have been a pretty good Muslim. Right. It's the law pretty well. Um, but what a burden. It's not something that I actually want. And so th- as I kind of thought through that process, of why don't I want to just keep the law? I'm right. still thinking for grace. Oh, I love that. What kind of projects are you working on now, Rachel? What's the, uh, are you writing in the other books or are you pursuing new, new forms of life? What are you, what are you working on these days? I am actually in seminary right now. I'm attending Fuller Seminary, getting a master's and considering further education. I love, I love being in school. And then, yeah, I have, I always have writing projects. I can't seem to stop even if I try to. So there's a, there's one that might be in the future. I'm not, I don't really want to talk about it specifically yet, but. Fair enough. But seminary. So, I mean, that's not just education. That's not just education. That's specifically ordination or theological education. Yeah. It's not an MDiv, um, but but yeah, definitely theological education and specifically it's intercultural studies. And so I, all these years, I feel like of experience of what I have lived, I'm now adding this 
theological and academic rigor too. And I'm so thankful actually, I think it could work either way, but for me, it's been really good to have that experience and then to add the coursework and it's really deepening my response in my work in the classes. I love it. How have you noticed the difference between your children and their approach to Christianity as opposed to what yours was when you were their age? Has, has, has their experiences of growing up in Africa changed the way that you think about mm -hmm. raising children? Yeah, so so our the twins were two and a half years old when we came to Africa, and then my youngest was born on 9-11 in 2005 here okay. in Japan. Okay. She likes to say that she's Jewish and American. And now the twins are, they'll be 21 and she's almost 16. So their whole life has been lived both in Africa, but also in a Muslim country. Um, and so we've had very different types of conversations about faith than what I had growing up because they would see Muslims praying. A lot of times men will pray on the side of the road or their friends would be celebrating the holidays. And sometimes we would celebrate with them. Sometimes we would get our kids the same gifts that the locals were getting and sometimes we didn't so we were talking about it a lot but we also go to church and we also raise them in a christian family and so i think they are still honestly figuring it out all three of them right now would still identify as christian um but they the the two oldest who are in the united states right now struggle with the american church and how to relate with them they find it so lacking in diversity they find it so combative, combative, um, and they just, so they're trying to figure out how to practice their faith in the American context. And it's been a challenge, to be honest. Well, it's back into a, a talk about another culture. I mean, it's not just because that somebody calls themselves Christian doesn't mean it's, you know, exactly <laughs> going to be the same culture at all. Right. That's what they realized. Yeah. yeah. Have you, have you ever read uh, from the Holy mountain? Do you know that book? But he, he did a journey of, retracing the apostle paul's well he, he's retracing like the missionary journeys but he's going to the to the modern day syria and turkey and he was looking at he was tracing the monks the early christian monks that were setting up monasteries and then he's talked looking at where these monasteries are now and uh, and it's this fascinating book but one of the things he one of the mentions he makes was like you know the apostle paul would probably have felt way more at home in a syrian uh, mosque than in an evangelical megachurch. Yes, yes. Like, it, we talk about cross-culture, like that would have been, he would have understood the prayers, he would have understood even the postures, he would have understood the language. The megachurch would have been an utterly bewildering experience in almost every single way. Exactly, yes, that is something else I've really been struck by. I remember one night, it was actually Christmas, and we were driving home from church, and I saw this donkey cart and there was a man and a woman in the cart. And I said to my husband, that could be Joseph and Mary. You know, it was just so the background and what they were wearing with the robes and the scarves. And um, it just was so striking as compared to yeah, the, the Western evangelical megachurch, radically different. Well, all I can say is if you do find yourself in an evangelical megachurch situation and you want to learn something new about Jesus, go and read Rachel Pye Jones book, Pillars, How My Muslim Friends led me closer to Jesus. <laughs> That's all I can say. That's a, great, a really good first step, I would say. Rachel, thank you for coming on the tent. It's been really a joy to talk with you and I wish you all the best and blessings in Djibouti as you continue your studies and continue to make friends with, with Muslims. Yeah, thank you so much, Stephen. This is a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Well, it's a really good book and I really hope everybody picks it up.
Okay. Thanks, Rachel. All right. Bye. Bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10ththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.